0: Spiritual depression, melancholy, dark nights of the soul, being downcast. These are all various words and phrases that have been used to express some of the most difficult times in the life of believers throughout the ages. And whatever word uh, we would use... It is safe to say that the author of Psalms 42 and 43 experienced this reality. And so I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 42. These experiences, these dark experiences, these. Seasons of depression. They come for a variety of reasons and we're going to see as we go through uh, these two psalms We're going to see some of the reasons why this psalmist was experiencing this And we're going to see how this helps us endure uh, If and when we likewise go through these these seasons, so I invite you to turn psalm 42. We will read uh, Psalms 42 and 43 it says to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Nazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me as a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Many people believe that these two psalms were at one point just one psalm and somewhere along the way they got split up. Uh, still others who may not necessarily concede that would say that Psalm 43 would serve as an appendix of sorts to Psalm 42. Uh, either way, I think it's clear these psalms do belong together. Uh, there's a thematic and literary consistency to them. So there's you probably noticed some of this. Uh, there's a question in Psalm 43 2, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. That's the same question that was raised in Psalm 42.9. And then, of course, the refrain from Psalm 43.5 that ends that psalm matches that of forty-two five and 11. Uh, in addition to that, there's no superscription at the beginning of chapter 43, uh, which just means that uh, there's a smooth continuation between these two psalms. And so when we take these two together, there's three very natural divisions in the text today, all ending with this refrain, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And then this summons to hope in God. So we see that in 42.5, and then at the end of 42 in verse 11, and then at the end of 43 in 43.5. And these three sections... These three divisions are three laments that all conclude with the psalmist preaching to himself and this call to hope. And these psalms teach believers how to hold fast through the dark seasons of the soul. They instruct you to pour out your soul before God in all of its anguish and all that you are experiencing and then to cling by faith to sure hope in your faithful Lord, and so we want to work through these together, starting in in, in chapter forty-two, and so in this first lament, uh, we have the spiritual drought being described. This spiritual drought. We are told first in this in this superscription here, this is another psalm that is written to the choir master. This is once again for public consumption, this psalm. Uh, this is not just the experience of private individuals. It is experience of believers throughout the ages. Uh, it was also the experience of the Lord Jesus himself when he came, and we'll get into that a little bit more, but we have been talking about that over the past weeks as we've been going through the psalms. He knew what it was to be oppressed and to experience uh, sorrow in his soul. Uh, but we've seen this phrase to the choir master. But then we're told that this is a masculine of the sons of Korah. So at least in our series, this is the first time we've uh, seen this phrase, and we've heard of the sons of Korah. Uh, these were men that were descendants of the Korah. You think of Korah's rebellion, as it is often known. Uh, the men that opposed uh, um, the, the man that opposed Moses. Uh, Korah was Moses' cousin. Uh, He was also, therefore, a Levite. And so these Korahites, these were were men who were very close to the priesthood. And in David's time, many years after Moses, uh, he put these men in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. Uh, This was after, you remember, the occasion when the ark was brought back into Jerusalem, back to the house of the Lord. David appointed the the Korahites to be singers in charge of the song of the house of the Lord. Uh, We see that in 1 Chronicles 6, 31-33. And we know they continued in this role throughout Israel's history, even through all the ups and downs that we read about through their history, the tumult and the bad kings and the, the good kings of Judah. In 2 Chronicles 20 and verse 19, we find that they were still serving in that function in the time of King Jehoshaphat. We also know from 1 Chronicles 9 and 26 that they functioned as gatekeepers in the house of the Lord. So these were uh, men who were Levites and they were temple workers and they were song leaders in the, the temple before the temple was even built in the time of David and after the temple was built throughout Judah's history. And so this psalm was written by one of these men. And so let's continue by looking at verses 1 through 4. It starts as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. As the psalm opens, uh, this is not a nice scenic picture of a deer just quietly lapping up water by the river's edge, Uh, despite what pictures you've maybe seen, uh, despite what song you've maybe sung. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just (laughs) consider yourself blessed among sons and daughters of the earth. This is not a pleasant scene being described here. This is a picture of a deer that is dying for thirst. It is longing for water because there is no water. This is the opening picture painted for us of the psalmist's soul. As the dying deer is longing for that river's edge in the midst of drought, so my soul longs for you. It starts out very, very dark, very difficult. His inner being is in need of the Lord, and he's thirsting for the living God because he is in turmoil and seemingly cut off from the Lord. And he asks when he shall appear before God. And this is our first clue about the situation of the author. In all likelihood, this is expressing his desire to be at the temple, at the house of the Lord, worshiping. He wants to be where he belongs as a son of Korah, in the house of God, serving God there and leading the people in joyful song. This is where he wants. He wants to appear there before God, in the place where God himself resided in a special way in the, under the Old Covenant. This is the place where God commanded in a unique and special way that worship of him was to take place in this house in the city of Jerusalem. He is not there. He longs to be there. And in verse four, he remembers. He says, I remember these things. I remember as I pour out my soul. Notice he's bringing all of this before God. He's pouring out these things before him. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession in the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival, these pleasant, wonderful memories of joyful occasions in which he was leading God's people in marching into the house of God and praising the Lord, the living God. And yet, ironically, this is also a source of great torment for the psalmist in this moment because his present situation is not that. He remembers those days, but that is not his current situation. Rather, his situation is in verse three, where he says his his tears have been his food, day and night, crying continually. Lack of hunger; he's not eating anything. The only thing that gets into his mouth are his tears. Day and night, this is the case. In addition to that, his enemies are taunting him all the day long, saying, Where is your God? So many have concluded that this author is in an exile of sorts. And it certainly does seem that way. He's being impeded from going to the house of God and fulfilling his duty, his joyful duty, I'll add. He can't be there. Moreover, he's surrounded by enemies who mock him because it appears that God is impotent to help. Oh, that's where you want to be. You can't be there. Where is this God of yours? Right? He wants you there, presumably. He says that's where you should be. You can't go. Hmm. Some God. I just want to draw our attention to something uh, near the beginning here. Um, part of what makes the situation for this psalmist so difficult is the very fact that he has known tremendous joy. Joyful worship of God has been his experience. He knows what it is to walk closely with the Lord in communion with other people who are trusting in the Lord. This is a mature man. A mature believer in the Lord. A man who has served God and served God's people and moreover, he has loved it. This has been his joy to do. You can't have this sort of reaction, this sort of panting for God if you haven't known the Lord, if you haven't known the joy of the Lord, or the joy of fellowship with him, of closeness with him and with his people of like mind. Sometimes we think that As we mature in our faith, we would never experience this kind of thing. It's a very common fallacy. Because in reality, when God appears to be silent, it is particularly distressing and troubling to those who have known the sweetness of close fellowship with God and His people. When that gets removed for whatever reason, from somebody who has experienced that, that is when it becomes particularly acute and difficult. Where did those times go? Why is it that God is permitting this season right now, this drought? Perhaps you've experienced this. Perhaps you've been downcast. And you remember former days. Former days in which you seem to be perhaps more alive, more joyful, uh, praising the Lord seemed to come a lot easier maybe, but now as you've gotten older, life has gotten harder and the scars have begun to pile up for various reasons, you notice sometimes your joy has taken a hit and you remember former days that were so good. And it aggravates the the present distress and turmoil by memories of those joyful earlier days. And this part of you just longs for that. That's experienced by this author. That's not just you. Let's look at verse 5 where he now, after pouring these things out before the Lord, we're getting something of his situation He now preaches to himself in verse 5. He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. To combat his felt misery, he preaches to himself. He preaches to himself. He begins. Asking himself why he is downcast. He, he knows this is not really right. He knows this is not quite correct, this feeling he has. He knows he ought to take courage. He knows there's ample reasons to be hopeful. And he chides himself a little bit here. Why are you downcast? And he reminds himself of the truth. But before we get to that even, he's asking himself why he's in turmoil within me. This word turmoil can also be translated as howling, as in the howling of dogs. Psalm 59.7, David speaks of his enemies uh, returning howling like dogs to him. This describes this, this soul, the inner being of this psalmist, stirred up and turbulent within, barking like a dog, just howling away. This is what's going on inside of him. And so he's saying that he knows this, this shouldn't really be, but this is what's happening. And so he preaches to himself to hope in God. Hope in God. Stephen Lawson says, although he felt isolated from God, the psalmist stirred his mind to override his emotions and feelings by hoping in God he's summoning his own soul to hopefulness and this is not just wishful thinking that's not what hope is here just some well i hope things will get better i wish you know we don't really have no idea it's not a groundless hope he's stirring himself up to, but it is a hope in God. It is a hope in who God is, who he says he is, that he is, in fact, the living God, the almighty, that he is faithful to those who take refuge in him, faithful to his people, hope in God, that he will yet turn this situation around he says for I shall again praise him my salvation and my God. He knows that this anguish will not last forever. That God will come through and a joyful dawn will come. This will pass. He's not saying this because he sees when it will come. He doesn't know oh by Friday this will be over. He doesn't see the end. He's he's hoping in God. That's why he's confident at some point this will turn around, because of who God is, because of God's faithfulness to his people. God will deliver him from this gloom. Friends, when you feel this discouragement in your soul, do what you can to place your hope in God, to lift your eyes to him. Preach his attributes to yourself and his goodness. This is why, one reason why it is good to know God and to know theology, to understand who he is, because it will help you when these days come. The hymn writer William Cooper wrote, speaking of difficult, dark times, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. This is what he's saying. This is what the author here is saying in Psalm 42. Difficult days, turmoil within, but he's seeking to hope in God. Behind this frowning providence is a smiling face. Difficulty comes upon believers, but let us preach to ourselves, to one another, of God's faithfulness, of God's majesty, of his sovereignty, of his love for his people. Even when we feel the darkness, he will not let you go. Hope in God. We get into the second lament, continuing in verse 6, where the the, the imagery shifts a little bit from, from drought. Uh, we now have water being brought in, and he's speaking of the depths of his turmoil. So look at verse 6 again. He says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, He has preached to himself in verse 5, but nevertheless, he says, my soul is cast down. He knows he has every reason to hope, and yet here he is. The situation persists. And so in verse 6, he is seeking to remember the Lord. He says, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. We wonder what this is. Well, Mount Hermon is way up in the north. It formed the northern boundary of East Manasseh. If you think of the half-tribe of Manasseh, they got two separate areas of inheritance, one on the Transjordan, the other side of the Jordan, the east side of it. And they were on the northern part of that. And at the northern tip of their uh, boundary was this mountain, Mount Hermon. Also up in that area are the headwaters for the Jordan River. And many think Mount Mazar up there as well. Mount Mazar means little mountain, probably another peak near Hermon somewhere. And so the author appears to be way up in the north, cut off from getting south to Jerusalem where the temple would be. Now what exactly is causing this for this uh, son of Korah? We're, We're not exactly sure. It's debated. One possible setting In 2 Kings 14.14, if you remember, uh, after um, Solomon's time, Israel was split into two different kingdoms. You have the kingdom of Israel in the north, whose capital was Samaria, the kingdom of Judah in the south, whose capital was Jerusalem, whose kings were from the line of David. In 2 Kings 14, Amaziah, king of Judah, was captured by the king of Israel named Jehoash. He then came down into Jerusalem. He sacked the temple, took away a lot of its good stuff, its gold, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and it says he took hostages back with him to the north. If if, if that's not the precise setting that this author of Psalm 42 finds himself in, uh, it's likely something similar. He's being taken away from Jerusalem. He's not allowed back. And his enemies are preventing this. And they're taunting him continually. So again, a major source of this man's anguish is that he is cut off from the Lord's people and from the place of worship. Isn't it interesting in the providence of God that we're in this text today of all Sundays? As believers around the world including us, look at the very real possibility of isolation and of being cut off from gathering with the Lord's people and gathering in churches, as we've been called to do. It's not known how long this will last. Different parts of the world are facing different issues, but lots of churches in Canada and the U.S. nearby have had you know, their meeting permits revoked. They can't meet. They're too big, so they're not allowed to have a meeting together. They're trying to do what they can to get by. And here we are, reading of a man who's in turmoil because he can't be with the Lord's people to worship. There's, there's a reason that the Lord has given one day in seven to rest and to gather together in worship. When Sunday arrives, I trust that you know and feel often the need to be a church, the need to gather with the Lord's people, the need to worship Him together, the need to sing His praises, the need to open His word, to hear His word preached, the need to be with brothers and sisters in the Lord of like mind. Sometimes a week can feel like forever. I mentioned earlier, Wednesday. uh, That seems like weeks ago to me. And frankly, with all this talk about what to do and people canceling services, it's a relief to be here. It's good to be here. It's right. The Lord calls us to be here. It's good. And often we leave this place and we go back out into our workplaces and daily lives, refreshed and encouraged and strengthened to carry on, to press on. This is a good and important thing, a a grace that God has given us to help us through as we pilgrim through this life. And when this is taken from believers, for whatever the reason, it is painful and difficult Let me just, a couple of things in regard to the present situation. Um, Modern technology has its curses. Uh, Social media, uh, it can be anxiety-inducing at the best of times. Uh, We're just bombarded with information. It's very, very difficult to even begin to process much of what we see. And there's studies that even show that it clearly does increase anxiety in people, young and old. And I think the the threat of that is even more now, even more the case now. Uh, with all of this information that's out there, and in many ways conflicting information, and I would just encourage you to to use caution as you go on there. Particularly if you know yourself and you know you're prone to be anxious about things and worried, I would just say be careful. There is no law stating you need to be on there. Um, just just caution. The reality is, we're not the first people in civilization to deal with runaway viruses and with unknown futures. But it is pretty new for us to be able to log on to the internet, our phones, log on, we don't even log on to the internet anymore, to just click on it, (laughs) and suddenly before you is what is unfolding across the entire world. All at one time, you see this, and it, it is a lot to try to take in. That is a pretty new phenomenon to just see, and it's there all the time, every time you click on it. And there can be this addictive thing where we go on to see what's new. It, do, it is addictive. And again, add to that conflicting information. I mean, we had lots of conversations last week. I heard a doctor. He seemed reputable. He said this. Someone else heard a doctor who also seemed reputable as an expert who said something different. Like, (laughs) not really sure. And so again, just, just caution through this time. At the same time, modern technology has its advantages. And it will also permit us to continue to have contact with one another, even if it comes to the point where public gatherings, for whatever reason, are not permitted. How easy to maintain contact with one another, to keep in touch. There's so many different ways that we can do it. And so herein lies a tremendous blessing of of modern technology. So I just say again whatever happens in coming days, uh, we are a church. And we are called to lay down our lives for one another. And I know, I have no doubt that you are prepared to do just that for each other. And I would just encourage you, do not suffer in silence. If you get to the point where you have symptoms or something like this and you you cannot go out, you should not go out. If you need something, we are here to help you. We will go to the store and get you what you need. And so just reach out. I know everybody here is prepared to do that for you if you need it. And so let us, let us be prepared. Let us do all we can and, and take other people up on that offer if you need it. Let us help each other in any way we can moving ahead and of course others outside of our church as well. If you know of somebody who needs help you know, and you can't quite do it, reach out to us and somebody will take care of it. Let us help in any way we can moving ahead. Let us hope in God as he remains good. Again, I think of Paul's words in Galatians. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Being cut off from joyful worship, whether it's related to this present virus scare, whether it's because there isn't a church in our area, Whether it's because of health problems of other kinds, whether it's because of shift work or some other pressing matter that simply makes joy, the joy of worship, hard, even when we are physically able to be at church, whatever it is, being cut off from the worship of the Lord and from his people is painful. And the psalmist here finds his worship difficult. He's cut off from Jerusalem. His soul is downcast. Even though he knows he has reasons to worship, he still is in this difficult position. And he goes on here and describes the depths of his despair, and he uses language of an ocean storm. Deep waves calling out to deep waves, crashing over top of him. The roar of waterfalls, that might maybe be better translated as water spouts, basically tornadoes upon the water. But he calls them here, notice, your waterfalls, your breakers, and your waves. He sees and understands the sovereignty of God in this. This is not just a natural cycle that's taking place, that, that, you know, just, well, a nation happened to come in and defeat them and take them away. It's just the way of the world. He understands that ultimately God is behind this, that God is sovereign, even in this difficult time. These are his breakers and waves that are crashing over him. This is not a faithless lament, this is God's doing. How important and helpful to note and to remember when trials come that God is absolutely sovereign and that these trials, they pass through His hand before they reach you. And so we rightfully come to Him and pour out our souls before Him. Nothing is outside of Him. Nothing surprises Him. In verse 8, the psalmist declares an objective truth. God's covenantal and steadfast love is commanded by day. He's saying it has not left. He knows this. He, again, he's got reasons. This He should feel better about things. God commands his steadfast love by day. The same God who sends the waves commands his love. He does not withdraw it. And so the psalmist says he has sung his song in the night to God. He's prayed to God with this knowledge. But he hasn't instantly felt better. Verse 9, he's crying out, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He knows the truth of God's steadfast love, but it's aggravating his circumstances. There's, there's nothing righteous about the oppression of his enemies. His enemies are in the wrong And while God commands his love, this psalmist feels an abandonment of sorts since these enemies who have no fear of God, as we'll see in a moment, seem to be triumphing over him. And the taunt from the enemy... He says, he describes as a deadly wound in my bones. And that's probably better translated as a shattering in his bones. This is how he's describing his experience. If somebody says, I broke a bone, we would say, ah, that's rough. If somebody says, I've shattered my bones, we'd all want to vomit. This is what he's saying of his his experience. This is how he feels inside. As these enemies say to him, where is your God? Where is your God? He feels destroyed inside. It's a miserable feeling to look at your situation and wonder where God has gone as everything looks bleak and then to have the ungodly come along and mock you for your situation. Saying that very thing, where is your God? And you're looking around thinking, I... it's a good question. You know these taunts. Sometimes they're just in our heads. If God was with you, this bad thing would not be happening to you. Some people might even say as much to you. Or we think, if God was with you, you wouldn't have sinned as you did. If God was really with you, you'd be much further along in your sanctification. Look at you. Where is your God? I sometimes feel this way even as I think of our church, collectively. As you run into false reports or rumors about what we believe that still sometimes persist, as we carry on as a relatively small group at what many consider to be a weird time on Sunday, meeting in another church's building, and you hear the the taunt, Where is your God? If this is so important, you know, the, the word you preach is so good, where is everybody? But here here again comes the refrain in verse eleven. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Difficult circumstances may persist, but the turmoil will end at some point. And regardless of what it is we face, God will bring us safely into his kingdom. As Paul reminded Timothy, at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul is saying he's being poured out like a drink offering. He's going to die. He's prepared to be martyred. He's quite sure this will come. It did, in fact, come. And yet he says to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 18 of 2 Timothy, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Ultimately, that is his hope. By God's grace, Paul was not in that season of hopelessness. Stephen Lawson writes, To hope in God means to wait upon God's perfect timing with a confident and strong trust in God about the future. This is what the author is seeking to preach to himself and to us that things will get better in God's timing. The Lord will lift his soul from these depths to the place of confidence, to the place of worship. And then, as we get into chapter 43, we we begin a third lament here, which seems to have a slight uh, ascent, if you will, in terms of hope. Uh, And yet the author is still battling this turmoil. Look at verse 1. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? This lament begins with a prayer for vindication, for defense of his cause against the ungodly and unjust enemies that taunt him. He knows his case is right. He wants to worship. He wants to be where God says he should be, with God's people. This is good and right, the revealed will of God for this author, for this psalmist. He wants to be in the place where God dwells, specially amongst his people on the earth. This is his longing, and his enemies are preventing it. They're wicked. They're unjust people. He knows his cause is righteous here. It's the Lord he takes refuge in. And so he's, this is right. So he's pleading to God to vindicate him. On one hand, it just does not seem right that he would be mourning and oppressed by these wicked people. And so he's pleading to God for justice. And of course, God is sovereign over this situation, and yet these enemies are acting in wickedness. What they're doing is not right. God's permitting this season, but they are acting unjustly and wrong towards this man. So he's calling on God to bring about vindication Again, just notice as we go through these psalms, these writers are pouring out themselves to God. They're bringing what's going on before the Lord. And it might seem simple, but do not forget to do that. (laughs) To pray and to pour it out before God. Even if you know, I probably should see this more clearly. I probably shouldn't feel this way. I'm not really sure that's right. Pour it out before him. I know that I shouldn't feel this way. I have every reason to be joyful. Eternal life is mine. But here's how it is. Here's how I feel. Help me with this. The Psalms show us we have permission to approach God in that way. To bring these things before him. To do as the Psalmist says, pour out my soul. continues with his appeal in verse three, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. He prays for the Lord's light and truth to lead him. It seems he is envisioning the day he would return to Jerusalem to the dwelling of the Lord, to his holy hill, the Temple Mount. And he would once again go, worship the Lord, his God, who he describes as his exceeding joy. Certainly this is his desire, to take up his post. But it is also very likely that he also desires the light and truth of God, firstly, to dawn upon his soul. That he might worship God even while his circumstances remain. That he might enjoy the blessings of God's altar even while he's in exile. Similar to Psalm 141 forty-one, two, which says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And then the psalm concludes here with this refrain once more in 43 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. When the Lord Jesus entered into the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed, Uh, You remember in Matthew 26, I think we mentioned this last week, uh, he said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And many see in those words an allusion to Psalms 42 and 43 because the translation of the Old Testament into Greek known as the Septuagint uses some of the same words that Jesus uses that's used of Jesus in Matthew 26 that speak of his soul being in turmoil. And that's what's being described here in Psalms 42 and 43. And Jesus likely, I would suggest, did have these psalms in mind as we know he was praying that night and we know the psalms are prayers of Jesus. He often prayed these prayers. And we know Jesus experienced Rejection from The people Enemies Oppression from his enemies He experienced a measure of rejection From his father From God the father As his wrath was poured out upon him As he took up the sacrifice for sins He was taunted While he was on the cross by enemies, really in the same vein, where is your God now? You saved all these people. Hmm. Jesus experienced this rejection from God, this despising from sinners. He did so on behalf of sinners. So not only did Jesus Jesus know turmoil of the soul, but he also provided for believers in such a way that he gives assurance that our hoping in God is not in vain, but is a sound hope. God does indeed command his steadfast love by day for all who are united to Christ by faith. For all who repent of their sins, and trust in Jesus, the one who died and rose again for sinners, God assures us by an oath that he will never leave us or forsake us and that he will surely keep you to the end, you who believe. Listen to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly To the heirs of the promise, believers. He desires to show more convincingly to believers the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge God is saying to you, by oath, if you are trusting in Christ Jesus, you will be saved. And the work of Christ seals it. God has pledged His grace and His love to believers. He has pledged forgiveness. He has pledged eternal life. He has pledged to work all things together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Spoken as if accomplished already. These things are sealed for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we hope in God, friends. Look to these promises of God. Despair, spiritual depression, turmoil within, being downcast. This will not be the final say. This is not your eternal end. Lift up your eyes to the one who will carry you through. Trust in him. Hope in him. I just want to close with a quote from the Puritan William Gurnall in which he speaks of faith and hope as two graces that God uses the two graces above all others to fill the soul with joy. He says this: Faith tells the soul what Christ hath done for him and so comforts him. Hope revives the soul with news of what Christ will do. Both draw at one tap. Christ and His promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what cause for joy we have. We can read it, we can see it very plainly, and yet, as weak, sin, sinful people, we still often feel like you have abandoned us. We still often judge your ways by feeble sense and and, and look at circumstances through blind unbelief at times. Father, there are times where we preach the truth to ourselves and still we find ourselves in turmoil. Father, I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us with the truth that those who are in Christ Jesus are yours and that you will yet do good. Father, I pray that you would lift our heads, that you would strengthen our weaknesses, that you would encourage your people to go forth with joy. Father, we are needy for you to help us. We pray that you would glorify your great name as you strengthen us and as you keep us going. Father, where enemies might look at us or look at our church and and mock, God, we pray you would vindicate the justice of your cause, that you would yet make your name great in our own midst and in people around us, Father, lift our eyes, lift our heads, strengthen us, we pray. We ask you to do it, that Christ might be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.